The Tree of Appomattox, A Story of the Civil War's Close, by Joseph A. Altscheller, the eighth and final volume of the Civil War series. Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com. Read by John Bruzes. You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast. Chapter 11. Cedar Creek. The Winchester Regiment and the rest of the cavalry returned to the Union Army, and, on the memorable night of the 18th of October, they were north of Cedar Creek with the 8th Corps, most of the men being then comfortably asleep in tents. A courier had brought word to General Wright that all was quiet in front, and the same word was sent to Sheridan, who, returning, had come as far as Winchester, where he slept that night expecting to rejoin his command the next day. But there were men of lower rank than Wright and Sheridan who were uneasy, and particularly so Sergeant Daniel Whitley, veteran of the Plains and of Indian ambush and battle. None of the Winchester officers had sought sleep either in the tents or elsewhere, and in the night Dick stood beside the suspicious sergeant and peered into the fog. I don't like it, said the veteran. Fogs ain't to be taken lightly. I wish this one hadn't come at this time. I'm generally as scared of most of the things I can't see. But what have we got to be afraid of? asked Dick. We're here in strong force, and the enemy's too weak to attack. The Johnnies are never too weak to attack. Recollect, too, that this is their country, and they know every inch of it. I wish Mr. Shepard was here. I think he was detailed for some scout duty off toward the Blue Ridge. I don't know who sent him, but I make bold to say, Mr. Mason, that he could do a lot more good out there in the fog on the other side of Cedar Creek, a spyin' and a spyin' and a lookin' and a lookin' and a listenin' and a listenin'. And perhaps he would neither see nor hear anything. Maybe, sir, but if I may make bold again, I think you're wrong. Why, I just fairly smell danger. It's the fog and your fear of it, Sergeant. No, sir, it's not that. It's my five senses working all together and telling me the truth. But the pickets have brought in no word. In this fog, pickets can't see more than a few yards beyond their beats. What time is it, Mr. Mason? A little past one in the morning, Sergeant. Enough of the night left yet for a lot of mischief. I'm glad, sir, if I may make bold once more, that the Winchester men stay out of the tents and keep awake. Warner joined them and reported that fresh messengers from the front had given renewed assurances of quiet. Absolutely nothing was stirring along Cedar Creek, but Sergeant Daniel Whitley was still dissatisfied. "'It's always where nothing is stirring that most is doing, sir,' he said to Dick. "'You're epigrammatic, Sergeant.' "'I'm what, sir? I was never called that before.' "'It doesn't depreciate you. It's a flattering adjective.' "'But you've set my own nerves to tingling, and I don't feel like sleeping. "'It never hurts, sir, to watch in war, even when nothing happens. "'I remember once, when we were in a blizzard west of the Missouri, only a hundred of us. "'It was in the country of the northern Cheyenne, "'and no greater fighters ever lived than them red demons. "'We got into a kind of dip, surrounded by trees, and managed to build a fire.' We were so busy trying to keep from freezing to death that we never gave a thought to the Indians. That is, Septon One, the guide, Jim Palmer, 
who knowed them Cheyennes, and who kept dodging about in the blizzard, facing the icy blast and the whirling snow, and always looking and listening. I owe my life to him, and so does every other one of the hundred. Sure enough, the Cheyennes come, riding right on the edge of the blizzard, and in all that terrible storm they tried to rush us. But we'd been warmed by Palmer, and we beat them off at last, though a lot of good men bit the snow. I say again, sir, that you can't ever be too careful in war. Do everything you can think of, and then think of some more. I wish Mr. Shepard would come. They continued to walk back and forth, in front of the lines, and at times they were accompanied by Colonel Winchester or Warner or Pennington. The colonel fully shared the sergeant's anxieties. The fact that most of the Union Army was asleep in the tents alarmed him, and the great fog added to his uneasiness. It came now in heavy drifts, like clouds sweeping down the valley, and he did not know what was in the heart of it. The pickets had been sent forward, but the vast moving column of heavy whitish vapor hid everything from their eyes too, save a circle of a few yards about them. Toward morning, Dick, the colonel, and the sergeant stood together, trying to pierce the veil of vapor in front of them. The colonel did not hesitate to speak his thought to the two. "'I wish that General Sheridan was here,' he said. "'But he's at Winchester,' said Dick. "'He'll join us at noon.' "'I wish he was here now, and I wish, too, that this fog would lift and the day would come.' "'Listen, what was that?' "'It was a rifle shot, sir,' said the sergeant. "'And there are more,' exclaimed Dick. "'Listen!' There was a sudden crackle of firing, and in front of them pink dots appeared through the fog. "'Here comes the Southern Army,' said Sergeant Whitley. Out of the fog rose a tremendous swelling cry from thousands of throats, fierce, long-drawn, and full of menace. It was the rebel yell, and from another point above the rising thunder of cannon and rifles came the same yell and reply, like a signal. The surprise was so complete— Gordon had hurled himself upon the Union flank, and at the same moment early, according to his plan, drove with all his might at the center. Dick was horrified, and for a moment or two the blood was ice in his veins. "'Back!' cried Colonel Winchester to him and the sergeant, and then, after shouting, "'Up, men! Up!' he blew long and loud upon his whistle. All of his men were on their feet in an instant, and they were first to return the southern fire." but it had little effect upon the torrent that was now pouring down upon them. Other troops, so rudely aroused from sleep, rushed from their tents, still dazed, and firing wildly in the fog. Again that terrible yell arose, more distinct than ever with menace and triumph, and so great was the rush of the men in gray that they swept everything before them, their rifles and cannon, raking the Union camp with a withering fire. The Winchesters, despite their quickness to form in proper order, were driven back with the others, and the whole corps, assailed with frightful force on the flank also, was compelled continually to give ground and to leave long rows of dead and wounded. "'Keep close to me!' shouted Colonel Winchester to his young officers, and then he added to the sergeant, who stood beside him, "'Whitley, you were right!' "'I'm sorry to say I was, sir,' replied the sergeant." It was a great ambush, and it's succeeding so far. But we must hold them. We must find some way to hold them, cried the colonel. He said more, 
but it was lost in the tremendous uproar of the firing and the shouting. All the officers were dismounted. Their horses already had been taken by the enemy. And now, waving their swords, they walked up and down in front of the lines, seeking to encourage their own troops. Despite the surprise and the attack from two sides, the men in blue sustained their courage and made a stubborn fight. Nevertheless, the attack in both front and flank was fatal. Again and again they sought to hold a position, but always they were driven from it, leaving behind more dead and wounded and more prisoners. Dick's heart sank. It was bitter to see a defeat after so many victories. Perhaps the fortunes of the South had not passed the zenith after all. If Sheridan were defeated and driven from the valley, and Lee's flank left protected, Grant might sit forever before him at Petersburg and not be able to force his trenches. All these thoughts and fears swept before him, vague, disconnected, and swift. But he saw that Warner, Pennington, and the Colonel were still unhurt, and that the Winchesters, despite their exposed position, had not suffered as much loss as some of the other regiments. General Wright, in the absence of Sheridan, retained his head and formed a strong corps of resistance, which, although it could not yet hold the ground, might give promise of doing so if help arrived. Dawn came, driving the fog away and casting a red glow over the field of battle. The ground where the Union troops had slept the night before was now left far behind, and the Southern Army, full of fire and the swell of victory, was pushing on with undiminished energy, its whole front blazing with the rapid discharge of cannon and rifles. The terrible retreat lasted a long time, and the whole Union Army was driven back a full five miles before it could make a permanent stand. Then, far in the morning, the regiments reformed, held their ground, and Dick, for the first time, took a long, free breath. We've been defeated, but not destroyed, he said. No, we haven't, said a voice beside him, but the fact that the Johnnies were so hungry has saved us a lot. It was Shepard, who seemed to have risen from the ground. I've got back from places farther north, he said. Chance kept me away from here last night. What do you mean about the southern hunger helping us? asked Dick. I've been on the flank, and I saw that when they drove us out of our camps, the temptation was too great for many of their men. They scattered, seizing our good food and devouring it. It was impossible for their officers to restrain them. They've suffered losses, too, and they can drive us no farther. Then Shepard spoke briefly with Colonel Winchester and disappeared again. The fire had now died somewhat, and the banks of smoke were rising, enabling Dick to see the field with a degree of clearness. Union batteries and regiments were in line, but behind them a mass of fugitives, who had not yet recovered from the surprise, and who thought the defeat complete, were pouring along the turnpike toward Winchester. When Dick saw their numbers, his fears were renewed. He believed that if the Southern Army could gather up all its forces and attack once more, it would win another success. But while he looked at the long line of fire in front of them, a sudden roar of cheering rose from the Union ranks. It became a shout, tremendous and thrilling. Dick turned in excitement 
and he was about to ask what it meant, when he distinguished a name thundered again and again, Sheridan, Sheridan, Sheridan. Then before them galloped their own little Phil, seeming to bring strength, courage, and victory with him. His hat was thrown back, his face flushed, and his eyes sparkling. Everywhere the men rallied to his call, and the shouts, Sheridan, Sheridan, rolled up and down. The fugitives, too, came pouring back to swell the line of battle. Dick caught the enthusiasm at once, and felt his own pulses leaping. He, and Pennington, and Warner, joined in the shouts of Sheridan, Sheridan, and snatched off their caps, and waved them with all their vigor. It was an amazing transformation. A beaten and dispirited army, holding on from a sense of duty, suddenly became alive with zeal, and asked only to be led against the enemy by the general they trusted. One man alone had worked the miracle, and as his enemies had truly said, his presence was worth ten thousand men. His coming had been dramatic. He had spent the night quietly at Winchester, but early in the morning he had heard the sounds of firing, which steadily grew louder. Apprehensive, he rode at once toward the distant field, and before he had gone two miles, he met the first stragglers, bringing wild tales that the army had been routed, and that the southerners were hot on their heels. Sheridan rode rapidly now. He met thicker streams of fugitives, but turned them back toward the enemy, and when he finally came upon the field itself, he brought with him all the retreating regiments. Dick never beheld a more thrilling and inspiring sight than that which occurred when Sheridan galloped among them, swinging his hat in his hand. "'What troops are these?' he had asked. "'The Sixth Corps!' hundreds of voices shouted in reply. "'We are all right. We'll win!' cried Sheridan. And then, as he galloped along the line, he added, "'Never mind, boys. We'll whip em yet. We'll whip em yet. We'll sleep in their quarters tonight.'" The roar of cheering swept up and down the line again, and Sheridan and his officers began to prepare the restored army for a new battle. All the time the Union numbers swelled, and as the Southern Army was hesitating, Sheridan was able to post his divisions as he pleased. The Winchester Regiment was drawn up towards the flank. All the officers were still on foot, but they stood a little in front, ready to lead their men into the new battle. It was now about noon, and there was a pause in the combat, enabling the smoke to lift yet higher, and disclosing the whole field. Sheridan was still riding up and down the lines, cool, determined, and resolved to turn defeat into victory. Wherever he went, he spoke words of encouragement to his troops, but all the time his eye, which was the eye of a true general, swept the field. He put the gallant young Custer with his cavalry on the right, Crook and Merritt with their horse on the left, while the infantry were massed in the center. The Winchester men were sent to the right. The doubts in the ranks of the South helped Sheridan. Early after his victory in the morning, was surprised to see the Union army gather itself together again and show such a formidable front. Neither he nor his lieutenants could understand the sudden reversal, and the pause, which at first had been meant merely to give the troops opportunity for fresh breath, grew into a long delay. Here and there, skirmishers were firing, feeling out one another, 
but the masses of the army paid no attention to those scattered shots. The Winchester men were elated. Colonel Winchester and the young officers knew that the delay worked steadily for them. All the defeated troops of the morning were coming back into line, and now they were anxious to retrieve their disaster. Dick, through his glasses, saw that the Confederates so far from continuing the advance were now fortifying behind stone fences, and also were spreading across the valley to keep from being flanked on either side by the cavalry. But he saw, too, that their ranks were scanty. If they spread far enough to protect their flanks, they would become dangerously thin in the center. He handed his glasses to the sergeant and asked him to take a look. Their surprise, said Whitley, has spent its force. Their army is not big enough. Our general has seen it, and it's why he delays so long. Time works for us, because we can gather together much greater numbers than they have. The delay lasted far into the afternoon. The smoke and dust settled, and the October sun gleamed on cannon and bayonets. Dick's watch showed that it was nearly four o'clock. "'We attack today, surely,' said Pennington, who was growing nervous with impatience. "'Don't you worry, young man,' said Warner. "'The two armies are here in line facing each other, "'and as it would be too much trouble to arrange it all again tomorrow, "'the battle will be fought today. "'The whole program will be carried out on time.' "'I think,' said Dick, "'that the attack is very near, "'and that it's we who are going to make it. "'Here is General Sheridan himself.' The general rode along the line just before the Winchesters and nodded to them approvingly. He came so close that Dick saw the contraction of his face and his eager burning look as if the great moment had arrived. Suddenly he raised his hand and the buglers blew the fierce notes of the charge. Now we go, cried Pennington in uncontrollable excitement and the whole right wing seemed to lift itself up bodily and rush forward. The men, eager to avenge the losses of the morning, began to shout, and their cheers mingled with the mighty tread of the charge, the thunder of the cannon, and the rapid firing of thousands of rifles. They knew, too, that Sheridan's own eye was upon them, and encouraged them to supreme effort. Infantry and cavalry swept on together in an overwhelming mass. Cannon and rifles sent a bitter hail upon them, but nothing could stop their rush. Dick felt all his pulses beating heavily, and he saw a sea of fire before him. But his excitement was so intense that he forgot about danger. The center also swung into the charge, and then the left. All the divisions of the army, as arranged by Sheridan, moved in perfect time. The soldiers advanced like veterans, going from one victory to another, instead of rallying from a defeat. The war had not witnessed another instance of such a quick and powerful recovery. Dick knew, as their charge gathered force at every step, that they were going to certain triumph. The thinness of the southern lines had already told him that they could not withstand the impact of Sheridan. A moment later, the crash came, and the whole Union force rushed to victory. Early's army, exhausted by its efforts of the morning, was overwhelmed. It was swept from the stone fences and driven back in defeat, while the men in blue, growing more eager as they saw success achieved, pressed harder and harder. 
No need for bugle and command to urge them on now. The southern army could not withstand anywhere such ardor and such weight. Position after position was lost. Then there was no time to take a new stand, and the defeat became a rout. Early's army, which had come forward so gallantly in the morning, was compelled to flee in disorder in the afternoon. The brave Ramsour, fighting desperately, fell mortally wounded. Kershaw could save but a few men. Evans held a ford a little while, but he too was soon hurled from it. The Invincibles were driven on with the rest, cannon and wagons were lost, and all but the core of Early's force ceased to exist. The sun set upon the Union Army in the camps that it had lost in the fog of the morning. It had been driven five miles, but had come back again. It had recovered all its own guns, and had taken twenty-four belonging to the South. It was the most complete victory that had yet been won by either side in the war, and it had been snatched from the very jaws of defeat and humiliation. Small wonder that there was great rejoicing in the ranks of northern youth. Despite their immense exertions and the commands of their officers, they could not yet lie down and sleep or rest. Now and then came a tremendous cheer for little Phil, who had saved them. Huge bonfires sprang up in the night, where they were burning the captured Confederate ambulances and wagons, because they did not have the horses with which to take them away. Long after the battle was over, Dick's heart beat hard with exertion and excitement. But he shared, too, in the joy. He would not have been human, and he would not have been young if he had not. Warner and Pennington, and he collected four more small wounds among them, but they were so slight that they had not noticed them in the storm and fury of the battle. Colonel Winchester had not been touched. When Dick was at last able to sit still, he joined his comrades about one of the fires, where they were serving supper to the victors. Shepard had just galloped back from a long ride after the enemy to say that they had been scattered to the winds and that another surprise was not possible, because there was no longer enough southern soldiers in the valley to make an army. They made a great effort, said Colonel Winchester. We must give them credit for what they achieved against numbers and resources. They organized and carried out their surprise in a wonderful manner, and perhaps they would be the victors tonight if we didn't have such a general as Sheridan. It was a great sight, said Warner, when he appeared, galloping before our line, calling upon us to renew our courage and beat the enemy. One man can influence an army. I found that out, said Dick. They rose and saluted as General Sheridan walked past with some of the higher officers. He returned the salutes, congratulated them on their courage, and went on. After a long while, the exhausted victors fell asleep. That night, a band of men, a hundred perhaps, entered the woods along the slopes of the Massanutans. They were the remains of the Invincibles. Throughout those fatal hours, they had fought with all the courage and tenacity for which they had been famous so long and so justly. In the heat and confusion of the combat, they had been separated from the other portions of Early's army, and, the northern cavalry driving in between, they had been compelled to take refuge in the forest, under cover of darkness. They might have surrendered with honor, but not one among them thought of such a thing. They had been forced to leave their dead behind them, 
and of those who had withdrawn, about a third were wounded. But their hurts bandaged by their comrades, they limped on with the rest. The two colonels were at the head of the somber little column. It had seemed to Harry Kenton, as they left the field, that each of them had suddenly grown at least ten years older. But now, as they passed within the deep shadows, they became erect again, and their faces grew more youthful. It was a marvelous transformation. But Harry read their secret. All the rest of the Invincibles were lads, or but little more, and they, two middle-aged men, felt that they were responsible for them. In the face of defeat and irretrievable disaster, they recovered their courage and refused to abandon hope. A dark sunset, Hector, said Colonel Talbot, but a bright dawn will come even yet. Who can doubt it, Leonidas? We won a glorious victory over odds in the morning, but when a million Yankees appeared on the field in the afternoon, it was too much. That's always the trouble, Hector. We are never able to finish our victories, because so many of the enemy always come up before the work is done. It's a great pity, Leonidas, that we didn't count the Yankees before the war started. It's too late now. Don't call up a sore subject, Hector. We've got to take care of these lads of ours, and try to get them across the mountain somehow to Lee. It's useless to seek early, and we couldn't reach him if we tried. He's done for. Alas, it's true, Leonidas. We're through with the valley for this autumn at least, and since the organization of the army here is broken up, there is nothing for us to do but go to Lee. Harry, is this a high mountain? Not so very high, sir, replied Harry Kenton, who was just behind him, but I don't think we can cross it tonight. Maybe we don't want to do so, said Colonel Talbot. You boys have food in your knapsacks, taken from the Union camps, which we held for a few short and glorious hours. At least we have brought off those valuable trophies, and, when we have climbed higher up the mountainside, we will sup and rest. The colonel held himself very erect, and spoke in a firm, proud tone. He would inspire a high spirit into the hearts of these boys of his, and in doing so, he inspired a great deal of it into his own. He looked back at his column, which still limped bravely after him. It was too dark for him to see the faces of the lads, but he knew that none of them expressed despair. "'That's the way, my brave fellows,' he said. "'I know we'll find a warm and comfortable cove higher up. "'We'll sleep there, and tomorrow we'll start toward Lee. "'When we join him, we'll whip Grant, "'come back here and rout Sheridan, "'and then go on and take Washington.' "'Where I mean yet, sir, to sleep in the White House with my boots on,' said the irrepressible Happy. "'You are a youth frivolous of speech, Thomas Langdon,' said Colonel Talbot gravely. "'But I have always known that beneath the superficiality of manner was a brave and honest heart. "'I'm glad to see that your courage is so high.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Happy sincerely. "'Halfway up the mountain, they found the dip they wished, sheltered by cedars and pines.' Here they rested and ate, and from their covert saw many lights burning in the valley. But they knew that they were the lights of the victorious foe, and they would not look that way often. The October winds were cold, and they had lost their blankets, but the dry leaves lay in heaps, and they raked them up for beds. The lads, worn to the bone, fell asleep, and after a while only the two colonels remained awake. 
I do not feel sleepy at all, Hector, said Colonel Talbot. I could not possibly sleep, Leonidas, said Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire. Then shall we? Why not? Colonel Talbot produced from under his coat a small board, and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire took from under his own coat a small box. They put the board upon a broad stone, arranged the chessmen, as they were at the latest interruption, and, as the moonlight came through the dwarfed pines and cedars, the two gray heads bent over the game.'